You're back at the Sacred Birth Circle. Today's guest is absolutely one of my favorites, and I know I say this every time, but Dr. Kleiman definitely holds a special place in my heart for helping me find the cause of my son's stillbirth after six years of not knowing. So I hope this episode will be informative and help many of you. Please share it on social media and enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Sacred Birth Circle. I'm Anna Vick. Thank you so much for coming in to this episode. I think that everyone who's joining us will probably know my guest today because I speak about him a lot and all of the things that I do, uh, whether it's with Measure the Placenta itself, a, a big group of uh, families that have unfortunately had a loss that has been related to placenta issues, or with Push for Empowered Pregnancy, where he is actually one of our board members. Um, but I do want him to have an opportunity to introduce himself first and foremost, then we'll get into the details. But this episode is not just about um, after the fact stillbirth discussion, because that comes into play, but we want to talk about prevention as we want to decrease the rate of stillbirths. And we want you guys all to have um, healthy outcomes if possible. So this is an important tool that we want to talk about. So hi, Dr. Kleiman. How are you? Hi, Anna. Thank you so much for asking me to join you this evening. So tell our viewers here about yourself. What's your background and why did I invite you on here today? Well, I can't answer why you invited me, but I will give my background. Uh, so I'm Harvey Kleinman, an MD, PhD physician scientist at the Yale University School of Medicine. I'm in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. I've been at Yale for 31 years. And I do a variety of things. I'm a physician scientist, so that means it's a combination of research, clinical work, and teaching. Um, my research focuses on the placenta, infertility, pregnancy complications, things like that. Uh, my clinical work, I deal with infertility patients and patients who have either pregnancy complications or pregnancy losses <clears throat> or recurrent pregnancy loss is a big area that we work on also. And at Yale, I teach everybody from the undergraduates to the medical students, to the residents, to the faculty and things like that. So I'm very invested ultimately in terms of your audience in one, trying to figure out why a loss happened. Uh, I think that's the first step after loss. Of course, it's a horrible, tragic event. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, obviously a mourning that has to happen, but I think the best way, in my opinion, to heal is to understand why. And the reason I push that so much is that I've been doing this for almost 40 years now, is that mothers in particular who've had life inside of them, when they lose a pregnancy, they feel very guilty. They feel responsible. You know, they're already a mother in their minds. And when they lose their child, it's like they feel, well, I, I was responsible for this child. This child was in me and now it's gone. So it must be something I did. And virtually that is never true. I mean, it's not 100%. I mean, there are very rare cases where there might be some you know, relationship between something a mother does and a loss, but virtually it's you know, extremely rare for that to happen. And the vast majority of cases that I deal with, 99.99%, frankly, the mother has nothing to do with it. And I think that knowing why a loss happened in a very scientific, concrete, tangible way that I can show the mother and the family what happened helps them bring closure to that loss. So that's step one. And the reason, the second reason that it's so important to understand why a loss occurred is that only by knowing what happened can we begin to hope 
to prevent something like that happening again. Now, not every loss can be prevented, but there are a lot of a lot of pregnancy losses that we can actually do something about in the future. And I'm sure we'll get into that in more detail. So that is a pretty expansive overview of my world and what I do. Thank you, Dr. Kleiman. Well, the reason I invited you is because I think you are the expert on all things stillbirth prevention. It's actually definitely a big part of what I do is help families find answers because I didn't get answers for six years. And that was very hard for me in my journey. And I agree. I felt very guilty. And I thought, you know, must have been something I did. If the doctor's saying sometimes healthy babies just die and they're not helping me figure it out. And I just had to, you know, go on with pregnancy after loss, not knowing how to do better, how to do something different. So it was really difficult for me as a mother. Um, my grief was just kind of, I think, longer than it needed to be. You know, if we can find closure, some information, then you can kind of deal with that and like take it in and like, okay, I know now what happened to my son. And now I can go and decide if I want to be pregnant again and have the tools needed, you know, to have a better pregnancy and not go at it blind and just, you know, fearful of every possible thing happening again. Um, and I do want to read here because I am on live Facebook. Uh, I'm already getting comments, but one mother shared that she thought the safest place for her baby was her belly and then she died full term. So I think that is a common you know, really misconception in a way, because we all think the third, the first trimester is the only time that there is any kind of danger for the baby because of miscarriage. And we think after that, you know, we're in the clear, everything should be perfect. And the doctors are also reassuring us at every appointment that our baby looks great. You know, we're getting the standard of care, which, you know, is debatable if it's good enough, but we assume that they're looking at our baby hundred percent and that you know, every time we're being told the baby's fine, then we at the same time can't really read, like if our baby is moving differently and things like that, we don't know what that means. We don't know that our baby could just die out of nowhere. So I think a big thing is the placenta not being looked at as well as it can be. And of course, also the cord, but you're the placenta expert. So we'll focus on that for tonight's discussion. And I do want to give people who are pregnant now some hope that there are ways to avoid these type of losses, especially if, you know, there is tools available. They're just not being used by all providers yet, but we're working very hard to make it part of it. Um, would you like to discuss a little bit about how we can measure placentas and how that can help us to see babies that are at any, you know, potential danger for having either small placenta or issue with the placenta happening? You know, before I talk about specifically measuring the placenta, I think it's important for people to understand what the placenta is, where it comes from, and the relationship of the placenta to the fetus, the baby. Um, so let's start there before we talk about measuring it. I think that's a good starting point. So there are a couple of things that need to be clarified. Number one, the placenta is part of the baby. It is not the mother. And the best way to think about this is a tree that you see above ground with the tree trunk, that's like the umbilical cord, the leaves and the branches are the fetus, the baby inside of the mother. And underneath the ground, there are as many roots, it's as large as the tree is above the ground, there's a whole root system. And obviously if we cut the tree right at the ground so it had no more roots, there would be no more tree, it would not be able to survive. It depends completely on those roots to get water and nutrients from the ground. The same thing is true with a fetus inside of the mother. The fetus is 
not 95%, not 98%, not 99%, 100% completely dependent on its placenta. Basically, there is no pregnancy without a placenta. And even more extreme, you can think of the embryo up until 12, 13 weeks, it's an embryo, and then afterwards a fetus as a passenger on the placenta. You can think of it as the good ship placenta. So the fetus, the baby, is actually a passenger being supported by that placenta. And if the placenta is not working well, that is very dangerous for the fetus to not have a good placenta. So with that concept, then it becomes clear why a placenta that is too small for its fetus is a very bad problem. So I, I want you to again think about the tree analogy I just gave. So think of a big oak tree and imagine that root system, which is as large as the tree is above the ground. And then you have only 1% of that amount of root system supporting that big oak tree. Well, it's not gonna do well. In fact, it probably won't survive because it's a gigantic tree and now it has a very small root system. And the same way, ironically, uh, when doctors look at women who are pregnant and they see a normal size fetus, they call it estimated fetal weight. And they say, oh, your baby's in the 50th percentile or the 70th or even in the 80th percentile. Everybody's happy. They say, wow, your baby's really big. But if you don't realize, and they don't normally look at, if they don't look at the placenta, they then miss the point that you've got this large fetus inside with a very small placenta, and that's a very dangerous problem. When that ratio gets to be bad, where the fetus is disproportionately larger than its placenta, um, and we could do it by percentiles, let's do it that way. Think of a person wearing a shirt that's size medium and pants that are size medium. Okay, now think of that same person wearing, having a medium shirt, but having pants of the size of a two-year-old, right? That, that's a mismatch, right? An adult with a normal-sized body and a medium-sized shirt, and now they have pants that are the size of a two-year-old. Well, that's a big mismatch. And so just looking at the shirt doesn't mean that that person is a normal you know, configuration. And in the same way, doctors looking only at the size of the fetus, the estimated fetal weight measurement by ultrasound really misses the potential dangers that can happen when the placenta is too small. So that's the background for why I became interested in measuring the placenta. I had seen in the early 2000s, a series of cases of stillbirths that had normal size newborns stillbirth newborns, but their placentas were extremely small. And I was frustrated with my fellow doctors at Yale. As I said, I've been here 31 years since 1991. So I'd been at Yale for over 10 years at that point. I talked to my MFM colleagues and said, hey, I have these cases. They have you know normal sized babies. They're, they've died. And the reason they died is they have very small placentas do you look at the placenta? What's going on? I said, no, we can't look at the placenta because it's too difficult to do it. The placenta is like a pancake, but because of the pregnancy, it's sort of curved in the shape of the uterus. In fact, I'm looking at your background now. So uh, although there isn't a placenta in that picture, we're going to have to maybe update that at some point. Dan, um, no, I knew that you would say that if you ever realized it. This this logo is like a quick what I mean myself, but I was seeing it too. I was like, ooh, there is no placenta. 
<laughs> well, you know what? We we can still use the example. Like the bubble? Of it. Uh, yeah, the bubble is, think of it as the amniotic fluid, and then that circle sure. around the fallopian tubes and, you know, what I think is the uterus, think of the a pancake being sort of plastered up against the edge of that circle. That's the shape of the placenta. It's like a crescent-shaped, a curve-shaped uh, organ because of the amniotic fluid. It gets pushed up against the edge of the uterus, and because of the configuration, it's actually challenging to measure by standard ultrasound. So my father, who unfortunately died in 2019, um, just before the pandemic hit, basically, um, he was a mathematician and engineer, and I asked him to help me with a mathematical equation. I said, Dad, I have this problem. I've got a you know curved shape. We can do ultrasound measurements of it. And if I give you these three measurements, the width, the height, and the thickness, I don't know if people can see me, but I'm using my hand as an example of this curved shape. If you make the width measurement, the height measurement, and the thickness measurement, I asked my father, what is the equation for the volume of that three-dimensional you know, uh, spherical cap, basically? And he came up with the equation and we showed that it works very well, that we're able to actually do that ultrasound and it equals the weight of the placenta when it's delivered. We published that paper in 2010, so 12 years ago. And then people said, well, okay, that's interesting, Harvey, but what about normative curves? We need to know what is normal and not normal in pregnancy. So we spent the next 10 years or so, you know, collecting data and showing what the normative curves are. And now we're at the point where we're really just trying to get as many people to use it as possible, especially for women who've already had a stillbirth because of a small placenta, that's sort of group one. Group two would be anybody who comes in with decreased fetal movement, even if they have a normal sized fetus inside of them, um, making sure that the placenta is not too small for the fetus in relationship to it. And eventually I'd love to see, it's called estimated placental volume, EPV, the method used really routinely whenever an ultrasound is done, it takes about 30 seconds um, it's very easy. We actually just put a tutorial, two tutorial videos on my Yale website. So people can go to my Yale website. They can go to the section under placenta and they can look at estimated placental volume and their documents about, you know, how to do it, instruction manual, there are all the publications. And there's also a section called tutorials. So if any patient out there thinks that you know this should be done for them during their pregnancy and their doctor says well I don't know how to do it you know print out the manual it's a two page pdf and then also you know send them the link you know ask them for an email or show them you know write the link down so they can go to it so really is very simple and and our goal and measurethe-placenta.org is an, is an organization specifically to try to encourage estimated placental volume use being done for all patients. Um, you know, we hope that this is just done routinely because it's so simple, it's non-invasive, it doesn't hurt anybody, it takes about 30 seconds, and why not collect that additional data for every mother? Right, and there is some um, people who will not do this, even for someone who has had a loss due to a small placenta, which is really infuriating. But if you're in that boat, please contact uh, measuretheplacenta.org is the group. And we do have others that have successfully found providers who will do it. 
or they might give you some tips on how you can encourage them because it is just asking. You know, we just want to know that the size is still growing appropriately for our baby and you don't have to necessarily act on that. You can see it and take it into account everything else, but there's no reason why we should be flying blind, I think, when it comes to the size of the placenta that is feeding our baby, keeping them alive you know, for the whole pregnancy. And for me, our pregnancy care is not good enough overall. I think if you don't have scans after 20 weeks and you're just hoping this baby continues for a normal, healthy pregnancy, obviously there's a reason why so many low-risk pregnancies end in stillbirth. So I think we all need to be demanding more care in general, but this to me seems very common sense, like you're describing it. It's not hard to do. Um, do you want to tell the story about the person in the mall? I think you said you even had someone do it. Uh, was it really? Yeah. No, like, I think that's part of the problem. People say, oh, it's so hard. Like, I don't know. I don't know how to do it. You know, can I do it in my own office? And then so I think what your story will prove is that it isn't that difficult if you really try, if you want to do it. Sure. Well, uh, it was at a scientific meeting, and it was in the exhibit hall of a scientific meeting. It was actually in October of 2019. It was the last meeting I've been to. I haven't been to a large meeting since then. Um, it was the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, and I, I happened to be walking around the exhibit hall, and I saw a booth for Samsung, which is a company that makes a lot of electronic things, but they also make ultrasound machines, and they had a display of their ultrasound machines. And there was an ultrasound tech who was there. And I approached her, I said, hey, have you heard of estimated placental volume? She said, no, I don't know what that is. So I explained it to her, just like I've explained to your listeners this evening. And she said, well, it just so happens that I'm 20 weeks pregnant. So let's see how easy this is to do. So she basically put some gel on the probe. And while she was standing up, she did it on herself. And it took her literally 20 seconds to do it. Um, and I don't have a picture of her on my website because I didn't get permission from her and I lost track of her um, in terms of asking her, but it's a beautiful picture of her, the ultrasound machine, uh, her baby's placenta, which turned out to be, it was in the 80th percentile of the placenta. And I would love to get some follow-up from her, but I've never been able to directly connect with her, but she did it so easily, so quickly. So my attitude is if you can do it standing up on yourself, then this is easy to do. Right. But I mean, honestly, yes, it can be done more professionally. And like you said, you have those videos. I actually put it in our chat here, but I'll also include it in the notes for the episode. Uh, we all are so thankful that that Dr. Rad, Steve Rad, who is a wonderful doctor from LA, who is very well known and respected and he was the one who did the training video with you. And I think that that's going to show others as well. You know, like he's willing to try new things. Like everyone should be in this. I, th I think it's so interesting because everyone wants to wait for ACOG to tell them to do something new. But then there are doctors like Dr. Rad or Dr. Florisky or Dr. Stone who are all kind of cutting edge. You know, they want to prevent stillbirth in this country. They'll try anything. So I think it's really nice to see that as well because it doesn't have to be a guideline. It could be the doctor themselves saying, you know what, I, I'm curious about this, you know, new technology, new way of doing things. Like it, it makes sense. Like, doesn't it make sense to just measure the placenta? Like, I don't get why anyone would think that that's too much to ask, uh, especially after loss. So. Absolutely. You know, when you think of, if anybody has children, they know the first thing that happens when you go to the pediatrician's office is they weigh your child 
right? They want to see from the last year how much your child has weighed, and then they have growth curves and they follow the growth of that child. Not knowing the size of the placenta is like not following the most important thing about that pregnancy. And the other thing it's like, because unfortunately the placenta is so efficient and it just is like the little engine that could, it will maintain the growth of the fetus right until the last minute. And then all of a sudden it just completely fails. And it's like a car running out of gas. A minute before the car runs out of gas, it runs perfectly normally. So it's very quick from the time it's normal to where the engine stops can be, you know, a minute of driving. And in terms of a pregnancy, it can be a day. I've had so many patients who have come to me with stillbirths and the morning of, or the day before the stillbirth, they went in, they complained of decreased fetal movement. They had a non-stress test, which is simply looking at the heartbeat of the fetus, electronic fetal monitoring. They say, oh, everything looks fine. And then the next day or that evening, they have a stillbirth. Well, clearly a non-stress test is a complete failure to predict stillbirth. And yet it, it is used all over the place by everybody. And in fact, the doctors, you know, anybody who scientifically looks at uh, a non-stress test or electronic fetal monitoring knows that there is no positive or negative predictive value to it. It's actually a very poor test for predicting very bad outcomes. So, you know, if they're willing to use the non-stress test, which has no positive predictive value in terms of being able to predict stillbirth, why can't they do something that has a practical, um, you know, tie to a pregnancy, which is looking at the size of the placenta? This is something I don't understand. But as my wife says, and I agree with her, we are trying to change the paradigm of medicine. And it's very difficult to change people's minds in any field it's particularly interest, it's particularly difficult in medicine, and it's doubly more difficult in obstetrics. The reason is, is there's so much potential litigation, you know, against these people. They're very conscious about following all the rules and not doing anything that's not standard of practice. They're afraid if there's a bad outcome, then they'll be blamed for not doing something that was normal. So I, I sympathize. These people are not trying to hurt patients. They obviously do not want stillbirths either, but they're so self, you know, almost paranoid really about this that it really makes it difficult to engage and get this new technique used out there now. Okay. So I want to give you some stuff from our chat real quick because there's a few good ones. Uh, the first is someone's asking for a friend. Where can she get a portable ultrasound machine so she could do this herself? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that's actually, that's a, that's a great idea. I would say a couple things. Number one, uh, Philips, the company Philips makes a handheld ultrasound device called the Lumify, L-U-M-I-F-Y, Lumify. Now I don't work for Philips, you know, so I'm not, I'm not promoting it for anything, but I had a student um, go to Senegal for a year with a Philips Lumify ultrasound, it's not an ultrasound machine. It's literally just the probe. It connects to a, um, you know, not an iPad. It connects to a, um, you know, a tablet, let's call it. It had to be, it was a Samsung tablet actually in that case. And it basically functions as a portable ultrasound machine. There's another company who makes another ultrasound, which is 
even better. I think it's called the butterfly. You can look that up. One of the reasons I like that is it connects to iPads and iPhones. You know, it's Mac compatible. And the butterfly is very high resolution. And you can literally do EPVs. You know, if you knew what you were doing, you could do it easily. Um, I'm not, I'm not advocating that. You know, I think that's a sad. I think that's a sad situation when we it have is, this, isn't it? That we have to perform our own. You know, that would be like saying, you know, you should draw blood on yourself at your home and you should measure your hemoglobin levels. And, you know, I think that's a sad situation. That well, we're we're going to make the doctors do it, but that was a funny question. And I just want to. Well, it's not, it's, not so, it's not so funny. I think that really uh, the fact that my medical student could do this in Senegal and she, you know, we trained her to do it before she left. I really think it's easy enough for people, you know, if they can do ultrasound to do this. So it's not completely out of the question. Maybe we should have like um, these little, you know, pop-up clinics, you know, for EPV, you know, where someone gets trained and they yeah, just Yeah, and like, people. we're still kidding, but I will also say that the Push for Empowered Pregnancies big push event, we were talking about how can we bring an EPV here? Like maybe we can have something where we go to a mall locally and we can actually like show someone on one of those ultrasound machines because we do feel like it's so simple that we can show people and then they can go back to their doctor and say, we really, you don't have that. You, you know, I did it myself this weekend. Like, you know, well, it's, it's, you know, it's not that look, there are mothers who, and I know this uh, from many people who go to the mall and go to these ultrasound places for, you know, a fun picture of their kid and a, and a 3d image it's not a medical ultrasound, right? It's just done sort of for fun, quote unquote. But it's not that unreasonable to maybe even talk to those people and say, hey, why don't you, quote unquote, for fun, do an EPV for them also? So actually, that could be a new fundraiser for Measure the Placenta. We can do a travel bus, I hear. Erica said we can have an EPV travel bus. There we uh, go. Go around and give these out. Uh, but I do think it's something we should encourage our providers to do for our care because we do see value in it. And we don't think... We can discuss a little more, as you were saying, like they're a little bit worried about what's going to happen to them because they're not following guidelines. I would like to hear a little bit more about that because personally, I know like, yes, if they're protected if they follow ACOG. ACOG doesn't say to do this yet, so they're not sure they should do it. But we're not saying pull out every baby with a small placenta either, right? What are we actually saying to do? Once you see the placenta size and you're starting to notice this placenta is not tracking where it should, like what should they think about then? Sure. Well, that's, that's a very important question. And it is very dependent on the gestational age of the mother, at what point in the pregnancy we're looking. But I'm going to give a general answer and then I'll sort of... Um, home in on, you know, pregnancy in particular. So in general medicine, we do something called risk stratification, which means that if we do a test and depending on the result, we triage, we separate the patients into several groups. I'll give an example of colonoscopy. I'm sure your audience is too young to know about colonoscopies, but someday if they're lucky, they'll become old enough to do a colonoscopy when they're 55. So what happens is your first colonoscopy, if it's completely normal, you are not seen again for 10 years. If they see some polyps, you're seen five years later. If you had some polyps that had some abnormal cells in it, you may be seen two years later. That's called risk stratification. Likewise, in pregnancy, 
you can do an estimated placental volume and add it to the toolbox of things that you're making a decision about. Obstetrics in its very simplest form is a decision, it's three words, it's in or out. That's basically obstetrics. So at every point, you're weighing the balance of in or out. So before 23 weeks, you can't be out, right? So if you saw a small placenta at 20 weeks, you're not going, you'll observe it, you'll risk stratify that person into a higher risk category, but you're not going to deliver them, of course. And then you're when you get to 24 weeks, let's say, even then, if the fetus is, you know, functional and there's enough amniotic fluid and it's interval growth, right? That from 20 weeks to 24 weeks is grown normally then it means that it's still being supported enough by the placenta. But as you start getting a placenta that's smaller and smaller in relationship to the fetus, then looking at these other markers, the interval growth of the fetus, the amniotic fluid index, how much fluid is around the fetus, uh, maybe the audience doesn't know, but amniotic fluid is created by urine from the fetus. It's urinating. That's where the fluid comes from. So just like when you don't drink enough water, you don't urinate as often. And if you drink a lot of water, you urinate more often. If the fetus is well hydrated from a normal sized placenta, it will have enough fluid to urinate normally. If the placenta is small and it's not feeding and nourishing that fetus, it won't produce enough amniotic fluid. So that's, you know, those are some of the indications and tools that can be looked at. And there are even more sophisticated tests that OBs and maternal fetal medicine doctors can use. I've never advocated to make the decision of delivery based on estimated placental volume alone. I want it to be added to the toolbox, part of the, you know, thinking about what to do. And certainly it is something that can be followed very easily. And um, Dr. Florescu, you mentioned Heather Florescu in Rochester, she has written up a paper of several of her cases, which are very good examples of this. I'll share one as just a representative example. A woman came in at 32 weeks with decreased fetal movement. Now she's at 32 weeks. We don't ideally want to deliver her and decreased fetal movement is a marker of a potential problem. And Dr. Florescu did the EPV and the placenta was in the second percentile very small and the fetus was a normal size. So that was a bad ratio, but she didn't say, well, we're gonna deliver you right away. She said, I wanna see you in a week. A week later, the fetal movement was better. The amniotic fluid index was okay. The interval growth was fine between the, the two weeks there. So she said, I wanna see you another week later, right? So she came in at that point, the amniotic fluid index was a little lower the interval growth was not as perfect. It was starting to flatten off. She said, well, I'm going to see you in a week, but I'm just telling you that I'm getting concerned. And she, the week later, the amniotic fluid index was down even more below the threshold of being, you know, that alone was enough of an indication for delivery. And the interval growth had almost stopped at that point. So she delivered that baby. Now, the fact of the matter is, I think she saved that baby's life. But you know what? We cannot do an experiment with the same patient and ask you know, this question and answer it. What would have happened if we didn't deliver her, right? Let's split time into a, two forks and see 
One example is we don't deliver that patient and does the patient, you know, the baby survive and does it die or not die? And the other one we deliver, you know, at 36 weeks, which is earlier than normal. So that is one of the challenges for obstetricians is that, you know, you never 100% know what's going to happen after you've delivered a baby if you maybe delivered to you were too quick to make that decision. So it is a delicate balance, but there are times when, in my opinion, that example was the perfect way to handle that case. And I do think that she saved that baby's life. Yeah, I agree. And it gets me very frustrated and others from Measure the Placenta when we are told, well, we need more research. And we're like, well, how do you want us to do that research? Do you want us just to wait and see how many more babies die? Because we have 23,000 a year. That's a clear example of what we're doing right now is not good enough. And I'll read one of the comments now because um, Liz is on here and she says, ACOG might not be ready, but we weren't ready for our daughter to die. They'll figure it out just like the rest of us. So it does seem like for us now, after our children die, that this stuff seems very common sense, simple. Like, of course you should be paying attention to the placenta. We actually all thought probably that they were paying attention to our placenta a lot better than they actually are. I don't think they are at all, to be honest. Like with the lowest pregnancy, I don't think there's any kind of checks and maybe you can correct me on that, but I think the high risk might get some sort of monitoring as far as how maybe the blood's flowing to the placenta and that sort of no, thing. No, no, I, I, I would say, let me just clarify that. In routine obstetrical care, the, the only thing that is done with the placenta is its location. You know, having the placenta overlying the cervix, which is called placenta previa, because the placenta is previous before the fetus, is obviously very dangerous. You have to do a C-section in that case. So that's important to diagnose. But beyond the location, if the placenta is not over the cervix and is someplace else, anterior in the top part nearest the abdomen, or posterior nearest to the spinal cord of the mother, or fundal, the top part of the uterus, those places, they once they document where it is, that's all. They just say placental location and they say it. They don't go any further to look at it. If everything looks normal in the pregnancy, they don't do any more sophisticated tests. They don't start looking at blood flow in the placenta unless there's an indication to do that. Maybe decreased fetal movement would trigger some maternal fetal medicine doctors to do what's called umbilical artery Doppler, which is actually looking at the blood flow from the fetus into its placenta. But that's usually only done if there's a problem, you know, low amniotic fluid, decreased fetal movement, or, or interval growth starts to drop. My contention is that the placenta is always smaller before those other problems, you know, other things show up. It's the first sign that there's a problem. Well, like you mentioned, it's pretty simple to measure it and the way that you've kind of done it so scientifically as well. It's not like it's so off, like it can give them a very good picture of where it's at. And if you do it every time you get an ultrasound, then you should be able to catch situations, you know, prior to them being as bad as they are. So then your baby just doesn't have enough nutrients and it's just floundering in there, you know, and, you know, coming from the point of view of a lost parent, I think that when I had my records looked at by you, I was, you know, it took me forever to turn them in because I was really anxious. I was like, you know what? I haven't known for this many years. Do I really need to know now? Do I want to know? Is this going to help me? Is this going to make me feel worse? Is this going to make me feel more guilty? 
if there's something that comes up, you know, that I could have done differently. But at the end of the day, I, I said, I'm doing it because I'm telling everyone to go to you, first of all, because I've heard of you. I know that you're doing great work. And I know a lot of people are finding answers. And then I was like, if I'm not willing to go through the process, I can't tell somebody how it is. So I'm doing it. I'm just going to do it. I rip off the bandit. I filled out the form, finally turn it in. It's a really simple form. It doesn't take much time at all. It's really just your name and information and some of your pregnancy information. So it just took me that long because I was anxious. And so I turn it in and it gets there and I didn't even realize I had gotten my report back within a week. I think it was at my time. I know now with COVID, unfortunately, you're getting way more requests, but it was so quick. And so when I saw it and my, it was actually in my junk mail, I think it was really weird, but I found it and I was like, oh my God, he already sent it to me. And then I was super scared. And so then I opened it on a live. So if anyone wants to see me reading my results, it's actually on my Instagram. Cause I said, I'm just going to go through this in front of everyone. And so I showed myself reading what it said, and you clearly found that there was a reason, which was really shocking to me because my doctors told me we don't have a reason for this. We don't know why your baby died. Sometimes healthy babies just die, which to me sounded ridiculous and really horrible. And so that's why I did sh shoulder too much of the guilt because I thought, well, my baby didn't just die. It must have been something I did, right? So at the end of the day, I'm so thankful I did it. But I will also tell you, I was really hoping it wasn't a small placenta because <laughs> if it was a small placenta, I've had many friends get that and I would feel even more livid than I already am. I'm very mad. I'm an angry mom now. And I think I'm in rage mode always because this shouldn't have happened to my son, you know, cord compressions. I think the way to kind of combat the fact that people call them accidents is that and again, your baby will show some signs. So like the movement could have been a signal to me had anyone educated me on fetal movement properly and made it a bigger deal because I was a low-risk pregnancy. No one talked to me about it. I might've got a flyer, he said, when I got pregnant at eight weeks and that's about it. So for me, that seems like an area we could be working on. And obviously I am with Count the Kicks and we're doing all we can to share you know, fetal movement education, but the doctor as well, like he wasn't talking about it. So I blame him with that. But I was really, really glad it wasn't a small placenta because I probably would have burned down a building. Like, mm. I know that's how a lot of the moms feel. And they're very, you know, there's so much passion and you see it. You know, there's a reason why there's a Measure the Placenta website and meetings every month. And they are working really hard to get EPV out there because they have found out their baby died due to something that could have easily been caught. Much more easy than my son's death, you know? So... I just, I just want to say from that perspective, I know ACOG is slow and they want more research, but we have enough parents that have lost for this reason. And it's not okay for another one to happen tonight. You know, we have 65 babies dying a day from stillbirth. And we do believe at least 50% are preventable, if not more, because we are not all getting causes. And as we know in research, like placenta is one of the highest things like causing these problems for the baby at term. You know, these are babies that can be delivered safely. They're big enough. My son was a little bit under 32 weeks. So yeah, that would have been one of the causes like, or cases where someone might be a little concerned, like this might be too soon. But I know too many parents who have lost a full-term baby who could have easily been delivered an hour or two earlier and would have been fine. But nobody's looking at the freaking placenta or even the cord well enough to notice something's happening or even talking to us about stillbirth, telling us how to count kicks or pay attention to movements throughout the day and telling us this can happen to anybody. And I, we're not trying to scare people. And I know this society is like, oh, don't, 
don't tell pregnant women they can't handle it. Well, I'm so sorry. Like, what do you think is worse, losing your child or being a little bit nervous that their movement might slow down one day and then you're gonna have to deal with a little bit scary situation, but hopefully ends in a baby save and not with you bearing your baby, you know? I And I'm going on a rant, sorry, Dr. Kleiman, because this is your show, but <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's too yes. much. It's It's not okay for them to ask for more research when, like you said, the NSTs, They've been shown long enough not to really be indicative of a good health for the baby, even more than those couple hours that you're there. So why are they still doing that? And why are they still using that for reassurance and saying we need more research to do something which is just a measurement, which would give you another tool? So, and wow. okay. Anna, Anna, I, I have a couple thoughts that I want to share with everybody based on what you said. Um, first of all, for any, for you and anybody who's listening who's had a loss, I just want to express my deepest condolences because it's such a hard thing to deal with. And it never goes away. For your entire life, this will be with you. It's not going to just disappear, even if it's 30, 40, 50 years later. So that's the first thing. I just want to express my condolences. The other thing is I want to make it clear for people who haven't heard me before or any of the things I've shared or you know maybe looked at any of my papers is that Let's just talk about the frequency of the different causes of stillbirth in the third trimester, okay? Just so we have a perspective. The number one cause is a small placenta. About 36% of stillbirths in the third trimester are due to, are due to small placentas. Then about 20 or 15% are due to an intrinsic genetic abnormality. Now, that is not something that we can tell ahead of time, right? The placenta is not small, but there's something wrong with the placenta. So even an estimated placenta volume would not pick that up. And we're definitely, we have no tools to discover, you know, predict or prevent those. The next category you've mentioned is your category. You lost your child is a cord, we call it a cord accident because something went wrong with the umbilical cord. And there many, that could be a whole discussion of what can go wrong with the umbilical cord. You can think of the umbilical cord as when a scuba diver goes underwater, they have a tank, that's the placenta. The mask is where you know the oxygen goes into the fetus. And then the hose between the tank and the mask is the umbilical cord. So if you, you know, cramped, if you folded, if you did something to that, you know, hose for that diver, if that he or she was underwater at 200 feet, that would not be a good scene. They would not be able to get up to the surface fast enough if they didn't have any oxygen from through their tubes. So the umbilical cord is critical. And if something goes wrong with it, that is something that usually we can't see unless you do some very specialized techniques. Then there are a whole host of, I would say, adding up to about 20%, and we could divide them pretty evenly, of infections, of what are called fetal maternal hemorrhages, of immunologic reactions against the placenta. There are just a whole host of things. And right now, we do not have the tools to predict those either. So in terms of the low-hanging fruit of what is the most preventable cause of stillbirth, it is a small placenta. And luckily, as we said in the beginning of the show, the estimated placental volume technique is very good at finding those small placentas. So it is lucky that the number one cause of stillbirth is also the number one preventable cause of stillbirth. 
I guess I got heated. Sorry, people can't control it sometimes. But um, like you're saying, it's definitely so frustrating, especially after you've been the one that lost the child. So I almost feel like we've already had the research. The experiment's been done. I mean, you see what it is to not measure the placenta right now. So I don't know what the research they want is. And that's why we get so frustrated because we've been having meetings. We've been trying to talk to ACOG about it directly. Like, why are we not doing this? And what more do you need? And, you know, what additional research is necessary? Because we'll get it because we're, we're lost parents and we don't want to see anyone else suffer how we have. And so if we need to fundraise and get some kind of research going, you know, whatever we need to do, just tell us. And it just seems like there's just this, like, it's apathy. Is it apathy? Is it not caring enough? Like we don't see these individual pregnancies as important because to me, I don't think they're seeing like the effect that it has on our families to lose a baby like this. It's not, you know, oh, you just need to get pregnant again. And then next time you'll have this, another baby, you know, we have prepared for a certain baby that's falling in line in a certain order of the children we have that would be a certain age every year. We still have to mourn every year, every holiday every moment, really, you know, we just do our best to be strong, carry on. And I think that's part of the problem is that there has been a lot of silence around stillbirth for so long where we just mourn, you know, internally, maybe now that we're so vocal with groups like Push and a lot of people online on social media who are sharing, you know, very publicly what it is to be a parent who has lost a child at birth, at delivery, you know, maybe they'll start to care a little bit more and see it like more urgently. But uh, I just feel, I'm just very disappointed in our care level. And it's because I think the system is, you know, for profit. So of course they're not gonna give everyone more of everything, but if they're doing such a poor job, which I think they are doing, I think, you know, we need to demand it. So our families are demanding it for you. I don't plan to have any more children, but I have buried one. I birthed and buried my son. You know, I'm not even anywhere near him right now, thanks to being across the country from his grave. So I'm sorry, Anna. Are there any uh, questions that we haven't addressed in the uh, chat or, you know, let's so, see. Yeah, there's, there's people talking back and forth. Someone just shared your contact info because there are parents here that have not received answers, so they want to make sure that they can get their insurance to cover. Which maybe I maybe I can talk about that a little bit. Let me talk about that process. Is that okay? Yeah, definitely. Because I I kind of briefly said how easy the initial you know contact form is, but yeah, definitely please let us know more. Where okay, so let me give an overview of how that process works. So hopefully uh, there is a link there, but you can just look up my Yale website very simply. You could Google Kleiman, Yale, and placenta, those three words, and you would find my website. Or you can go directly to the link, which is Kleiman Labs, K-L-I-M-A-N-L-A-B-S, KleimanLabs.Yale.edu. So on that site, if you go under placenta, there is a section called uh, placental loss, uh, pr pregnancy loss, I'm sorry, not placental loss, pregnancy loss. And there is a description of the process. There are forms that, as Anna said, need to be filled out. And really, most people's insurance will cover this review. And people say, well, gee, they don't have the placenta still. This happened you know, two years ago, five years ago, whatever. So when a loss happens, 
it's actually malpractice to not send the placenta to a pathology department with a pregnancy loss. So it virtually happens all the time, not 100%. It is sad sometimes that I have patients that contact me and when we investigate you know, their case, we find out in fact, the placenta was never sent to a pathology department, which is a horrible thing. You know, we can't help those people. But most of the time, over 99% of the time, the placenta does make it to a pathology department where they weigh it and examine it and measure it. And then they take samples and those samples are processed and they're embedded in a piece of wax. And we call that a block, like a block of ice, right? And those blocks are saved for sometimes 10, 20 years indefinitely. At Yale, we save those indefinitely. So many institutions still have the blocks and those blocks are like a loaf of bread can be put on a cutting machine and additional slides can be made, which I can look at. Those are called recuts. So when those recuts get sent to me in my lab, uh, then I look at those slides and I can figure out what happened. I have a really great assistant, Kristen Milano, who, you know, her number is on my website. Her email is there. She helps all the families go through this process, talk to the people at Yale in terms of registering, finding out if someone's insurance covers the examination. Once I've looked at the case, as Anna said, very quickly, from the time we get the slides, it's usually a week before you know, I write a report, which I send to your doctor and I send to you. And then I invite families to meet with me. I have my clinics on Tuesdays and I meet with families via Zoom, just like I'm meeting virtually right now. And I spend as much time as they need to go over their case. And I try to understand everything about them medically, their family history, their past medical history, their pregnancy histories. And then we put together a plan of what to do for the next pregnancy if they're going to decide to have another one. And I make sure that by the time the meeting's over, they understand why they have their pregnancy loss or losses as the case may be. So that's the process. Please, if you're out there and you don't know why you lost your baby, please contact me, email me directly, email, go to my website, email Kristen, and we will help you with that process of getting the slides examined so we can answer the question of why this happened for you. And I'll add an extra plug for you is actually, if you do have a cause, please still consider this. And if your insurance will cover it 100%, I would tell you to do it because a lot of them are incorrect. And I have this from family members or friends who have told me that their um, cause ended up being completely different once Dr. Kleiman did it. And the reason being is not every hospital has trained pathologists in this area. So that's part of why we're pushing for the Shine for Autumn Act right now to be passed because we want more uh, trained pathologists throughout the country. And there's no reason why some of us should get no cause, some of us should get incorrect causes, but right now we have Dr. Kleiman thankfully not retired yet. So. I'm not retired. They're going to have to, they're going to have to carry me out in a box. Trust okay. me. I'm going to take that. We're going to write that down and not let him retire ever. Exactly. <laughs> we are hoping to have more people trained like him. And, you know, eventually you would be getting the correct information. But right now it's not done that way. It's not done correctly. I do have a question from our chat that, you know, maybe I don't fully understand myself, but I'm thinking you might when I read it to you. So her OB is refusing to measure placenta. Is there any ways that you have a visual cue on an ultrasound? that hence there's some sort of placenta issue happening. Like, is there a grade or an age or calcification of placenta viewable? Um, 
And, you know, would that help in this situ situation? Like if the baby's placenta is becoming insufficient, I guess, for their baby. Right. So uh, actually it was at Yale University that the placenta grading system was developed about 40 years ago, I would say. And it was a ultrasound measurement by looking at how much calcification was in the placenta, which is a measure of a slowing of blood flow to the placenta. Over the years, it was shown that that's not a very reliable measure. So people have stopped doing that. There occasionally might be some doctors who still grade the placenta one, two, three, with one being normal and three being very abnormal. But for the most part, that's not done anymore. And the only real way uh, practically to understand if there's enough placenta there is to measure the volume. Um, you know, it's a difficult problem when a doctor who otherwise is taking good care of you refuses to do an estimated placenta volume. Uh, and it may be simplistic for me to say this, but if it's possible for you to find a new doctor, then vote with your feet. You know, I mean, you're the customer and it's not just on a whim. You know, if you're concerned about this, especially if you've had a loss already, you deserve all the stops being pulled out, right? Because you've had a loss already. We don't want that to happen again. Of course, I don't know for a particular person what the cause was, but since the most common cause is a small placenta, just guessing what the cause will be in general, you'll be right 36% of the time if you guess a small placenta. So if you have other doctors in your area, then you know find another doctor. The other thing is, I am very responsive to people emailing me. If you have a doctor who's refusing to do it, just say, look, I heard Dr. Kleiman and he would be very willing to communicate with you. Here's his email. Could you please email him and he will send you information about EPV. I'm very happy to train anybody how to do it. I'll do a Zoom educational you know, conference call with any doctor's office, their technicians, their staff, whoever. So I'm available to help any patient through their doctor anytime. So when they do this grading, like how did they decide the grade? Is it because Amanda's asking, is it their opinion of it? Like, how is it really? Yeah. So placenta grading, as I said, is really something that is not done anymore, but it was a, a, um, it's a qualitative estimate of how much calcification is present in the placenta. So as I said, a normal grade one would be no calcification. Grade three would be a lots of calcification. Grade two is somewhere in between, right? So that was the system. But uh, as I said, one, people don't really do that anymore. And two, it was shown to not really be predictive. I also want to go back to something you were talking about before, Anna. You were saying, you know, why don't people do this? On the one hand, um, PUSH really, uh, and Samantha has a fantastic slide that shows this. You know, when you take stillbirths, which are, you know, 23, 24,000 a year, something like that, that is more common than maternal deaths and SIDS than, you know, all, you could just lump all these other bad things that can happen uh, to children, to pregnancies, to mothers in pregnancy, and stillbirth, you know, overwhelms them. That being said, remember, there are 4 million deliveries a year in this country. So when you look at the percentages, the frequency is 0.6% or six per thousand. Now let's break that down. If 0.6% or six per thousand is due if stillbirths 
and small placentas are a third of them, that's 0.2, right? Uh, percent or two per thousand, one per 500, right? So when you look at a doctor in terms of their routine care, that means that, you know, they may deliver only 50 babies a year. That's 10 years worth of their clinical practice. And they might see one case with a small placenta, right? So that's number one. So it's from their point of view, infrequently infrequent. So I think part of the problem and Ann O'Neill, who created MeasurableSanta.org website, I don't know if she's on tonight, but you know, she and I worked together with an international group of researchers, and we're trying to get the data to confirm and validate that doing EPV is justifiable. The problem we're having is that it's still <clears throat> stillbirth is still such a rare event when you look at all pregnancies that it's very hard to prove scientifically, right, that EPV would have an impact. So we, we are in a difficult situation. It seems, it, to me, I'm convinced, right, that this is the way to go. But science, you know, doctors want scientific proof of this. And I've been working very hard to try to do that, but it's very challenging to prove that EPV will prevent stillbirth. And it makes it even more difficult when the event itself is rare. So I think part of the reason that there's pushback is that if they do nothing, most of their patients will be fine, right? And it's infrequently that they'll have a patient with a stillbirth. So that's one of the reasons. I'm not happy about that, but I think we need to be realistic. You ask the question, why? This is one of the reasons why. Mm -hmm. So I'll ask you a question from the chat really quickly because I know we're running out of time, but this is an important one. There's obviously something I would respond to right away, but if she is using, um, okay, so she had a stillbirth due to small placenta already. So she's wondering if she can use like a home Doppler to monitor her baby's well-being and are deceleration signs of distress. If so, what would the heart rate need to be? You know, how low would it go for her to be concerned? So you know what Bush thinks about that question, but. Yeah, so the best thing, I don't know if I know this person, but if this person had a stillbirth because of a small placenta, in my mind, they 100% need in their subsequent pregnancies, whatever pregnancy they ever have, again, they need to be followed with estimated placenta volume. That's really, that is the answer. So that's number one. Number two, short of that, as you alluded to before, Anna, you know, we have to empower women in general. They know their bodies the best. They are attuned to their baby's movements, morning, noon, night, et cetera, five in the morning, three in the morning, whatever. You know, if something isn't, doesn't feel right, do not Google it and see, oh, what does Google say about that? Do not just drink orange juice. Do not wait for an hour for a call back from your OB. Go to labor and delivery and say, I don't feel right. I haven't felt my baby move. Something is wrong. And just plop yourself down until they do an ultrasound, look at the amniotic fluid index. Even if they don't do an EPV, which I wish they would, let them do everything else, not just an NST. Do a biophysical profile, which is a much more detailed ultrasound. You know, make sure that you know, they see fetal movement, right? Make sure the amniotic fluid index is normal. And if you're at a point where you're 37 weeks or beyond, your term, 
I would literally say, I am not leaving until either you figure out what's going on or you deliver me because I don't feel right. And uh, as Samantha says, who is the you know head of PUSH, I don't know her exact title, director, CEO, I don't ever keep track of that. But she says, use your mom voice. You know, it's like you just demand to be taken care of. And I totally support that. Mm -hmm. And so as far as Dopplers, our statement on Dopplers is never use them because a heartbeat will be present until your baby's not longer with you. Yeah, I, that is just not a way for you to assess the overall state of that fetus. So, yeah, for a variety of reasons, I wouldn't recommend okay. that. Yeah, and but like you said, if she's already experienced this, so is it more genetically likely then for this family to have another small built it depends so yeah. there are three there are three main reasons for a small placenta one is a genetic issue two is decreased blood flow and three is an immunologic reason so that's another reason to find out why the loss occurred because if it's immunologic we can actually immunosuppress the mother and fix the next pregnancy right if it's genetic we can't do anything about that but if it's decreased blood flow, then we can certainly, we would give those women aspirin starting in about 10 to 12 weeks of pregnancy. And we would make, we might even do placental blood flow measurements, right? On someone like that with a proven reason for decreased flow and following their blood pressures and things like that. So knowing why a loss occurred is not just for closure, although that's an important reason, it's to get medical data to help with your next pregnancy. Right. So with your report, if you had a small placenta, it would probably give you a little bit more as far as what caused the pl small placenta. I always, I always explain exactly why the placenta is small. Yeah. So, I mean, that's super helpful because in my case, it was cord compressions. And I don't know that there is an actual reason that we can say other than maybe the way that my baby was positioned or. There was a chance, yeah. unfortunate event. Right. And so as far as movements, I want to just hammer in for that as well. Is there a way of knowing from your movement change that the placenta might be failing, might be too small? Like is your baby starting to act a little slower? Is that some way you can actually go in and then say, look, my baby's acting different. Measure the placenta now or do the ultrasound now or do the NSC and the BPP. Like obviously I would suggest staying overnight and staying as long as you can because babies can act normal on one scan and then later you still don't feel right and they're still in, in distress and they didn't catch it. So uh, we do know a lot of families who've lost a baby after having an NST and being reassured with that and going home and resting. And then the next morning or their appointment, the baby is no longer here. So um, I do think maybe it's a good way for you to say if there is a connection, obviously, that the baby's placenta is now failing. So hopefully they can catch it if they're not doing the APV. But, you know, we, of course, don't want to react all the time. So I, I agree that, again, in the general statement is if you if a mother doesn't feel that things are right, they should go into labor and delivery. What is causing that is a wide range and a long list, right? Certainly a small placenta is up there on near the top, but it can be cord compression. It can be that the fetus lost blood, right? I mean, there are just a lot of different reasons. It's not always a simple reason. So the most important thing is if things don't feel right to you, if you feel decreased fetal movement, if the movements just aren't the way they used to be, if they're weak or whatever it is, go into the hospital, go to labor and delivery and tell them you don't feel right. Make them 
do every measurement they possibly can. Of course, it would be nice to have EPV added, but that's just one of the tools in the toolbox. They still have a bunch of tools that they can use to look at the pregnancy. There are some additional questions we won't be able to get to in the chat, and they're seeming a little bit more specific to their pregnancy anyway. So I would recommend you guys email Dr. Kleiman because you do want to go into detail with those type of questions and not just get overall conversation like we're doing here. So Dr. Kleiman's email is on his website. I'll also link it in our show notes to make sure you guys have access right away. But I right. and I'll say this to anybody listening or anybody listening to the recording. If you have a specific question, uh, you think that you know you don't know the answer, you're dissatisfied with what's been said to you, email me at harvey.kleiman at yale.edu and we will start the process of us getting the slides from your loss uh, from your child's placenta. Remember the placenta is not mom's, it belongs to the baby. We'll look at your baby's placenta and we will figure out what happened. And I want to say one last thing is that you do take families from all over the world, the right? World. Like, yeah, all over the world, of course. There might be some issues as far as how to get it to you. They are going to have to work with some sort of process there. So it might take you a little bit longer and um, I don't know what the rules are as far as what you can communicate back as um, I have seen some people in the past have had, like they want follow-up, they want the extra meetings. So that does have to come through additional process. It's not the one first report. It's not going to necessarily answer everything. Right. As I said, I generate a report and there's always, we have to send it medically, legally to a doctor or somebody. Um, and we also send a copy to the patient but I always invite the patient at that time to make schedule a meeting. Of course, uh, that costs money to do that. Um, that is usually not covered by insurance. In fact, basically it's almost never covered by insurance. So I feel bad that that has to cost the patient something, but that that's what happens. And they can choose to do that or not. I think at least I, I don't have a hundred percent, you know, positive ratings. Like, I don't know, uh, you know, you, when you buy things on Amazon, you get all these positive ratings, whatever. Uh, there are always patients who are not happy with what I say, maybe because they either feel it's, you know, not the right thing, or maybe they feel guilty about what I've shared with them. Okay. COVID is a good example. I've had a bunch of patients, sadly, with losses due to COVID, and some others don't want to face the facts that their loss was due to COVID. Maybe they weren't vaccinated. Maybe they feel guilty that they, remember I told you there are some examples of cases where a mother does play a role in it, and one of those is not being vaccinated. If a woman is not vaccinated and she gets COVID, it can definitely end the life of her fetus, her baby. And I do think that the mother has some, you know, connection to that, right? There are choices being made. Without question, every single person should be immunized and every mother who's considering being pregnant should be immunized against COVID before they get pregnant because that virus specifically can attack the placenta and kill the pregnancy. So yes, please, uh, you know, let me take a look at it. Most of the time when I do speak with people, you know, patients, they're very happy and grateful they were able to do that. Right. And I do want to say about COVID is we do know too many and they're coming out with a lot of new studies and everything on that. So unfortunately, we didn't all know what to do about COVID when it first arrived here. So I know a lot of mothers may have got it because they were waiting for the trials. And so in any case, we don't blame parents ever in our 
you know, whatever Dr. Kleiman gives you is just so you know, so you're prepared for a future pregnancy if you want to have one. And, you know, there's never a finger pointed at you that you should do this or that. But we are seeing that this placenta is getting destroyed by COVID completely. And it's really sad because that could be something that we can help with prevention, you know, having you vaccinated now that we know it's safe to do so. So please consider. Absolutely. I will strongly, strongly encourage that. Mm -hmm. Well, we took a whole hour. I got a rant in. Dr. Kleiman, I think you got all the information people need here. But if you need more, please feel free to reach out for any of us to give you more information, whether myself or measuretheplacenta.org has a lot of uh, families who are really in-depth um, understanding what it is that EPV is and how to get your doctor to consider it because it, it is a conversation and they have a handout as well as how to have this conversation. So we make it as simple as we can. And like Dr. Kleiman said, he's available as well. And he's somebody that you know, is very well known, well regarded. So I think that your provider should be open to giving him a call or email um, just to see what this is and hopefully do it for you, especially if you've had a loss due to this. It shouldn't be, you shouldn't have to beg for it. But if you do need to find another doctor, we do help with that as well. Measure the Placenta has some that are already on the website that are doing these and you can tell them, you know, Dr. Stone is doing them. She's the head of SMFM. So she's again, well-regarded person doing it. Everyone should do everything possible to prevent a loss of this, you know, great tragedy. It's not something that you just get over, like I was saying earlier. So anything we can do, especially if it's like this, very mathematical, very well done by your father. And I'm sorry that he's not here, but that's a gift you know, to the world that we will hopefully be using, you know, in the future for all pregnancies. So thank you so much, Dr. Kleiman. Let me just, uh, before we close, I just want to express again, my deepest condolences for anybody who's had a loss and anybody who doesn't know why they've had a loss, please reach out to me. I would like to be able to help you. It was a pleasure being with you, Anna, and my best wishes to you and everybody. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I'm so happy you were my last interview of this year. I made it my 20th episode. We did one every week and I, I need a break for the holidays. I need a little hoof. And after the big push too, we were all overwhelmed, but cheers to you, Dr. Kleiman. I've been having wine with this one. Okay. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you so much for all you're doing. Cause I do think that this in the long term is going to save so many babies and you know, that's my goal as a parent who's lost a child. I can't have my son Owen here anymore. And this is the only way I can mother him. And, you know, really gives me so much joy. I got a recent TikTok video actually sharing her baby save story because of the things I've shared that she realized her baby was acting differently and she felt encouraged to go in and she went in and saved her baby and she shared her story and the little baby's on her chest and nothing makes me oh. happier. That's yeah. so nice. All it right. Is so nice. And I know you're the same story as yourself. So thank you for everything that you're doing. And good night, everybody. Good night. Bye. Thank you, Dr. Kleiman, so much for sharing all your knowledge with us tonight. I think it's a perfect way to end our first series of episodes for Sacred Birth Circle. I hope that you learned a lot from it. Remember to share this episode on social media so you can help others in your circle grow their knowledge and have a better birth outcome. Remember that all the posts that we share and our episodes are not meant to be medical advice. We are simply trying to help you and inform you as you continue your pregnancy. But always remember that you should consult your provider if you have any questions or concerns. They're there to help you and they are available to you 24-7.
even if you have to go into the hospital or ER. Again, follow us on social media to continue up to date with our next episodes and our posts. And feel free to connect with us in the DMs. If you have any questions, we would be happy to be there for you. You are not alone. This is your community. And we hope that you will continue to watch our future and past episodes to continue to add to your knowledge as we interview birth workers, providers, researchers, and even people who have experienced different births so that when you get to your birth, you'll be a little bit more informed and prepared for whatever comes your way. Goodbye for now.